This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the future of the conflict in the world and what can be done about it. Violence and warfare are perennial problems for humanity, and in recent years, it seems that the character of violence is changing and changing rapidly, with norms being eroded in the process. Additionally, conflict is moving into cities. And today, more than half the world's population lives in cities. By 2050, more than two-thirds of the world will. And as more people move into urban areas, so does violence and so does violent conflict. To help us understand how what is going on in the world and how to navigate these issues, I have today a guest who's on the front lines of addressing the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises and urban conflict. Peter Maurer is the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross. He is also a former ambassador and permanent representative of Switzerland to the United Nations. Welcome to Chicago and welcome to Deep Dish, Peter. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. It's uh, good to be here and uh, good to hear what you want to talk. So I want to start with um, a a description, if you could lay out for what the ICRC's roles are when it comes to conflict. We often think of humanitarian roles, but you also play other roles in trying to to encourage adherence to norms in conflict. So what what is it that your organization does in this regard? Well, in one sentence, uh, what uh, our leading sentence is that uh, we are here to assist and protect people from the impact of war and violence. Uh, And of course, everybody understands assist and mitigate the impact. It's bringing water, food, medicine to people in need who are disrupted by violence and conflict. Generally, it's more difficult to explain what protect means. And protect, at the end of the day, what does it mean? We have a role in supporting states to respect the Geneva Conventions, the basics of international humanitarian law, the way you uh, conduct hostilities in warfare, the way you use weapons. And I think our key role here is really to engage with armed forces, armed actors in today's theaters of conflicts with state and non-state actors to have the norms known and to have the norms of war respected. And the norms of war respected means that we want to protect civilians. It's about protecting civilians. It's about ensuring that the basic principles which for centuries and throughout cultures have developed as uh, norms of behavior in war that these norms are respected and therefore the negative impact on civilian populations diminished. Uh, it's protecting people does also means that we want to ensure that weapons are not used illegally in disrespect of, uh, of the law or that illegal weapons are used in theaters of conflict. That's also protecting people, not exposing them to the illegal use, for instance, of chemical uh, or other weapons of mass destruction. So ICRC has a critical role enshrined in the Geneva Conventions to advise countries on the humanitarian impact of weapons. And therefore, an important role is really 
disengagement with arms bearers on the whole spectrum from the conduct of hostilities to protecting civilians to ensuring humanitarian spaces to uh, ensuring the use legal use of weapons and uh, preventing the illegal use of weapons to engage uh, in the theaters of conflict. Our role is also to negotiate humanitarian spaces at frontline to ensure that what this template of neutral, impartial and independent humanitarian action can unfold even in the worst of circumstances and that there are spaces which are unaffected by the warfare and where civilians and those not participating in war can find protection during war. So this whole spectrum is at the end of the day much more central, much more important, much more complicated also to convey into the broader public, but it is of course uh, much more important as well than the mere mitigating activities which try to save lives uh, in the difficult circumstances uh, in which many people find themselves in today's violent and war. So with that mandate and with your global operations, you're in a position to see trends in terms of warfare trends in terms of norms, violations of, uh, of norms. You know, the ICRC is also not a name and shame organization. So I don't mean to, to ask you to, to uh, identify you know, specific perpetrators. But what I would like to get a sense is what are some of the norms that you see as being most under threat today um, and most commonly uh, violated in violence around the world? Well, look, uh, at the end of the equation at victims, uh, we have been concerned since the Second World War at the end of the day, but this trend has accentuated that the main victims of any war today are civilians and not the military. So those uh, areas in which are basically and by and large protections of civilians are those which are uh, most uh, critical and which are most frequently violated in, in our context. Look at the sanctity of the medical mission, uh, the protection of hospitals, health workers, ambulances is one of the critical areas of concern which uh, we have raised uh, publicly as well as more specifically in our diplomatic interventions with arms bearers uh, in today's conflict. We have, uh, together with other organizations, uh, we have launched a process of bringing these issues to the conscience of public opinion, to bring them to political decision makers, to seize the Security Council on the threat that health workers are exposed to in war. And this is particularly important because of the strategic importance of health uh, and the preservation of this neutral and impartial space with health workers. I think that's the, maybe one of the most, uh, of the most prominent uh, areas where we see difficulties. Uh, the second uh, area is with the, you rightly in your introduction referred to the urbanization of war. And as wars are urbanizing and weaponry which was designed for open battlefields are used in densely populated areas and urban areas, we see much more impact. And so 
the rules of proportionality, distinction and precaution, the three principles guiding military operations according to international humanitarian law are critically at stake in today's warfare where war is moving into cities and explosives with deep impact are used in the same way as they would be used very often in open battlefields. And that's another area of uh, big concerns of ours. And therefore, we are trying to engage also with armed actors to see what could be mitigating measures in order to have less negative impact of explosive in densely populated area. The third critical area which goes into the respect of norm is, of course, that we have seen an explosion of actors in the battlefield. Uh, If I look only at ICRC statistics, uh, more in the last seven years, more non-state armed groups have come to the 30 biggest operations of ICRC, operational theaters of ICRC, than in seven decades before. Today, uh, ICRC is in operational contact in order to negotiate access to ensure respect for humanitarian law with more than 400 non-state armed groups, while we have not much more than 100 state armed forces with which we interact. So this gives you a sense of the challenges with which we are confronted today, given that today's battlefields are highly fragmented and therefore ensuring respect and knowledge about the law is much more complex in today's environments. So one of the things that's touched and embedded in that answer that I want to draw out is you as an organization, one of the groups of people you work with are armed combatants, whether it's state actors, non-state actors, or others. And where some organizations look at norms and approach it through a naming and shaming when there are violations, trying to hold perpetrators into account, you all work in a different way, um, which is to be able to maintain the relationships with the combatants, with the, with the folks who are, are armed. Could you share a little bit about um, what advantages, because I can see lots of people saying, wait a minute, how do you deal with people who are committing mass atrocities and and, you know, uh, working with them. What advantages are are there in that kind of approach? What are you able to achieve that wouldn't be possible if you went to a name and shame kind of strategy? Well, let me first say that uh, not engaging in naming and shaming doesn't mean that we do not express ourselves in public, but we express ourselves in public very often around issues and not around specific actors and contexts. But in that sense, uh, I wanted also to nuance a little bit the idea that ICRC doesn't speak. Uh, The Red Cross speaks out, but maybe not in a naming and shaming logic, but uh, rather in a logic of sensitizing the broader public opinion on the negative impact and the humanitarian impact of crises. But to your question, Brian, I think uh, indeed one of our features has been that in order to be present as close as possible to people affected by conflict and as close as possible to perpetrators of violence and to armed actors, 
we need to have a special relationships with those actors, which is confidentiality of dialogue. And if we wouldn't have this, we wouldn't have access. So when I look at the profile of ICRC, it's interesting, for instance, to notice that today we are visiting every year almost one million prisoners in more than 100 countries of the world. And if we would to do naming and shaming on what we see in detention facilities in those countries, we wouldn't have access because the condition of access is by, by and large that we are working on a logic of changing behavior in a space of confidentiality with the respective authorities, be they state and non-state, and not in accusing them and putting pressure on them in the public space. Same with armed actors. I think we do have access in places where other actors don't have access because we do have a logic of engaging confidentially with those actors. While some organization would go to the media describing violations of international humanitarian law, we are very reluctant to assign violations to specific actors in the public space, which doesn't mean that we would not have very thorough, in-depth and serious engagement with armed actors when we realize and see and have proof of that they do violate basics of international humanitarian law. So our methodology is based on this confidential space on recommendations and engagements that we make, revisiting whether some of these recommendations lead to changes. And I think what we see today is that a sizable number of actors, state and non-state, do act upon our recommendations, change ground rules, change instructions, change behaviors. And I think it is important to recognize that there is not only a pattern of increasing violations that we are seeing, this is happening and it's true and it is a big concern, but we also see all those structured armed forces, state and non-state, with a genuine sort of willingness at least to engage with us and eventually to change behavior. Uh, this doesn't say anything negative about organizations who do naming and shaming mm -hmm. and go to the public space. It, my vision and our vision is just that we have different roles to play and that the role of ICRC as a, an organization mandated through the Geneva Conventions to support the respect of these norms that we can achieve more, we can have broader access, we can have spaces for neutral and impartial action if we work according to the methodology that I have described. So we've talked about some of the challenges and the approach that you all take to the work. Are there things that give you hope? And I don't know how concrete you can be with, it, with examples, but your organization is essentially about changing behavior, about getting greater adherence to norms. Um, what are the what, when you look out at the world and the the, the work that, that you're doing? What what gives you hope? Are there examples of things where you see actual positive change? Well, I I do see in in quite a number of theaters of conflicts in which we are that uh, 
arms bearers do not only violate laws, but they do respect them. There are those hospitals not attacked. There are those ambulances not attacked. Whenever somebody crosses a front line, this is an example that obviously there is respect for international humanitarian law and for the provisions enshrined. Uh, when I look at our operations, the fact that ICRC has doubled its surface and operational activities over the last eight years, and we see that we can bring relief with the consent of belligerents in the battlefields and in some of the worst battlefields from Syria, Iraq, Yemen to Afghanistan to, to the Sahel and the Lake Chad, these are testimonies also of respect of international humanitarian law. And that's the reason why, in order to be better in that issue that we launched uh, uh, two years ago, this initiative really to collect good examples as much as we collect violations and to use them for training manuals, for engagements with states in or and non-states in order to see how we can increase compliance by good examples and not only by uh, decrying uh, the violations. So I think we, we have a preponderance in the public space of focusing on violations while we undervalue and underestimate the positive effect of engagements and of respect that we are witnessing. Also, I would like to highlight the preventive effect of our engagement, which is so important. I mean, we train more than 130 armed forces worldwide each and every year in international law. We ensure that they have put in place and they put in place manuals and trainings. We exchange on best practices, on ground rules. We, we look at approval procedures of military operations and whether precaution and proportionality is used and all these manifold activities that the organization undertakes with armed actors is something which certainly has a preventive effect. Now, that's the prevention dilemma everybody is in. How do you prove to the broader public that what is not happening is because you have worked towards not bad things not happening. Normally, you can measure and you can decry and you can describe all the bad things which are happening and it's much more difficult to prove the effect of preventive action. But I think we have a series of uh, testimonies from military operators on the ground which would recognize that the engagement with ICRC through ICRC for the respect of rules have changed and has changed the way they operate in the ground and has led to less victims. So one of the things that brought you to Chicago was to talk to people in Chicago about issues around urban violence as a part of a broader um, initiative by the ICRC on um, urban conflict and, and violence. And I want to ask 
Why for you is urban such an, an important issue? You touched on that a little more, but expand on that. And then why a conversation in a city like Chicago, which certainly has violence and conflict, absolutely has that, um, isn't viewed as the traditional kind of war zone or conflict zone? So where does, where does the experience of a city like, like Chicago fit into your vision and what you're trying to achieve? Well, I agree that my uh, presence in Chicago is, uh, needs some explanation because uh, the average uh, person in Chicago would expect me to be uh, in Mosul and, uh, and Aleppo and uh, Thais, Yemen or Maiduguri Nigeria, Algeria and not in Chicago. But uh, I think with the global trend to urbanization uh, and our increased activities in urban areas and conflict, we have also realized that we cannot take a siloed approach, that there are those cities which are at war and which are under international humanitarian law provisions and have kind of a traditional ICRC approach that in these very cities which are at war other forms of violence continue at the same time. I, uh, I have had one example which uh, struck me so much that I refer to it from time to time. And this is a visit in Bangui, Central African Republic Hospital at 7 o'clock in the morning after a bloody night. And 30 wounded patients were brought to the hospital. And when I asked those 30 patients why they were brought to the hospital, only seven of them have been brought because of warfare, classical uh, skirmishes between uh, the peacekeeping troops and the armed actors in the city. The 23 others uh, who have been delivered to hospital have been victims of intercommunity violence, have been victims of crime, uh, have been uh, victims of uh, even interpersonal uh, relationships. So while war may be the dominant feature in Many places in which we are, we have to recognize that the cycle of violence is not limited to war and that if we want to address some of the complexities in war, we cannot just zoom out other forms of violence which happen in the same space. And when you recognize that violence and the continuum of violence is something much more broader and complex you easily come to the recognition that there are cities and places in the world which are outside of what we would consider armed conflict, but at the same time are violent. And the question is then, can we learn from each other and from methodologies we have in terms of community resilience, dealing with complex violence situations? And this is at the end of the day, what brought me to Chicago and other places, because our objective is really to be conducive to the creation of a network of cities which build a community of concerns, a community of concerns cities, exchanging experiences on how to curb violence, how to uh, engage with 
the different actors in the communities. And here we definitely can learn a lot from each other, at least this is certainly my recognition after a couple of hours uh, of talk and engagement and discussion this morning with representatives of the cities, of city here in Chicago, of civil society organization, of health actors, which again underscored the basic hypothesis from which we are starting, that there is a gray zone between different forms of violence, but there are uh, also communalities in which we can learn from each other. Uh, colleagues of mine have visited other cities uh, from Brazil to South Africa to, to Asia and we hope that Chicago will also be one of the anchor cities uh, of a network of cities to compare notes on how to curb urban violence and how to deal with violent-prone uh, societies in a better way. So here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, we have a, a program on cities and cities playing increasingly important roles in dealing with, with global issues. And one of the things that strikes me about this project is that you are directly engaging with cities um, at several levels, right? As you just mentioned, the municipal level, civil society level. Is this something relatively new in terms of the work of the ICRC and trying to get a handle on violence reduction, prevention, protection of people? That There is a set of urban actors that need to be engaged in ways that haven't been before. Is that? Well, it's definitely new in a sense that we haven't systematically engaged with uh, cities in the past, uh, our natural uh, our natural interlocutors were states and non-state armed groups uh, controlling territory and population. So that's what has been foreseen in the Geneva Convention as basically the the circle of uh, engagement of actors with which ICRC uh, would uh, would interact to ensure respect for international humanitarian law. Now, with the urbanization of warfare, again, uh, we recognize that this is now a new template, a new reality that we have to deal with. In terms of methodology, ICRC has survived for 156 years because we try to read carefully on what entities are relevant in a certain context to talk to, to engage with, to ensure support and to, ex uh, to see how we can interact. And cities are powerful actors in today's world of violence and conflict. And not talking and not engaging with the respective actors in cities which have respective experiences would be failing basic ICRC methodologies for 156 years to constantly adapt and to read uh, new realities of combat, use of violence, use of force. And in that sense, it's a continuation of methodology, even if it is a new type of actor with uh, whom we interact uh, today and cities obviously is an important one. Uh, I think uh, in a discussion, uh, in many of the discussions, uh, the 
figure uh, is is always quoted that out of the 50 most important and violent cities in the world, 47th are in the Americas. And I think this is something which in terms of humanitarian impact is something which should challenge us as a humanitarian organization. It's not only who is a key actor on the ground in control of territories, then also the question where are the new developments going and and obviously there is violence with deep humanitarian impact in the Americas which uh, is an issue of concern for a humanitarian organization and the question is whether some of the methodologies that we have unfolded and developed over the last 156 years can be brought to fruition uh, in those contexts which we are talking and I think that's probably also the whole strength of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent movement to have an international and a national and local component uh, within a known and a distinct Red Cross and Red Crescent movement acting on such issues. So, Peter Maurer, I want to thank you so much for coming on Deep Dish as president of uh, the International Committee for the Red Cross uh, and helping us understand the organization as well as um, giving us some hope uh, for what is being done to uh, try to address uh, really troubling uh, trends in the world today. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. And I want to thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap the share button and send it to them. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. Deep Dish.